Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians uh, Podcast. And today we will be discussing uh, medical informatics and primary care in the U.S. and also touch on primary care in the Middle East uh, and North Africa region. And our episodes, again, co-hosted with the famous Dr. Muhammad Ali Jardali. And uh, also we have with us as a guest today, Dr. Rami Khalil. Actually, what's interesting is that I am uh, currently based in D.C. Dr. Dr. Khalil is a graduate of the George Washington University, where I currently work as a medical student. He graduated from there. And uh, prior to that, he had done his uh, Bachelor of Science in uh, Chemical Biomolecular Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Interestingly, Dr. Khalil speaks Arabic, but he was born... Uh, and raised in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and recently moved to Dubai. Uh, he'll tell us a bit more about, about this. Uh, welcome, Dr. Khalid, to the podcast, and welcome, Hamad Ali. Thank you, Khalid. Thank you for having me on this uh, podcast. It's, it's great to be here. So, Rami, can you tell us a bit, before we start talking about medical informatics and primary care, can you tell us a bit about your training, how you ended up in primary yeah. care, and how you ended up in medical informatics? Absolutely. So, um, so actually, as, you know, as you mentioned, I, I started in engineering. I, I went to school for chemical engineering, and that was always with the intention that I would go into medicine. I just decided that uh, if I'm going to get an undergraduate degree, I want to get something that I could potentially use uh, in another career if I ever decided to not pursue medicine. And engineering has served me very well. I know very potentially very cliche to say, but it teaches you a, a very analytical and engineering mindset. And it's that mindset that I think serves as the, the, the foundation of my career de- decisions and career path over the past um, uh, 15 years. Uh, so after, after I obtained my engineering degree, I went to the George Washington University, uh, where I uh, completed my uh, medical doctorate and actually decided that I wanted to be a radiologist. Uh, so I, had, I matched into a radiology program in Boston where I uh, completed a year of, of residency training, but decided that I like talking to people too much to spend my entire day in a, in a room. Radiology is wonderful. I still read all my own CTs and x-rays and, and ultrasounds, but I'm a people person. I reached out to um, a, a pro, my program director at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and she graciously accepted me back to, to complete internal medicine residency. Uh, where I met my wife and we're now married. Uh, but um, after that, I, I actually fell into primary care. It's not something that I ever thought I would want to do. I never imagined myself as a primary care doctor. Uh, and I think that we could talk about this a little bit later, but um, I think there's, there's, there's good reasons that uh, I never thought of myself as a primary care doctor. And, and that's a problem. It's a problem that graduates aren't thinking about primary care in an attractive way. But anyhow, I, I fell into it and I fell in love with it. I think it's a wonderful field of medicine. I think that there, there needs to be a lot more of, of an emphasis on primary care or we in the U.S. and actually globally will be in a lot of trouble. Um, it's a throwback to the older days of medicine where you had your doctor who, uh, who saw you for, in the office, who saw your kid in the office, who delivered your baby, who did a surgery you know, I don't, I don't think anybody on this call was, was alive during that era of medicine. Maybe we had parents who were, but it's, there's something nice about that. And I think we need to get back to that. So, so I, I practiced primary care in Pittsburgh for five years in an outpatient uh, private practice setting, had a very full patient panel. 
And um, it's there where I started to really get my hands into medical informatics. I don't have any formal training in clinical informatics. Uh, recently, I've obtained some certifications and I'm pursuing board certification, but it all really started with just sitting on clinical IT operations committees, just volunteering my time on projects. Eventually, people recognize the work that you do, and it, it becomes apparent that not many people have a skill set where they can speak the medical language and also speak the tech language uh, and, and also know how to kind of wed the two. So that's really where, where I got started. Um, I, I put myself in a position where I, I, I was able to serve as kind of a liaison, and that opened some doors for me where I was able to volunteer for some projects. And eventually I was asked to lead some projects and it culminated uh, when I was asked to lead a, an institutional initiative to transition our entire health system from one EHR to another. And that was kind of a pivotal moment for me because it really pushed me into the informatics role where I was involved in vendor selection, configuration of the record, meeting with the analysts, meeting with the tech team, with senior leadership, being present for training, for go-live, for post-go-live support. EHR migrations became my first real uh, push into the, into the informatics space. And it was that at that time when I, I decided I wanted to pursue this further. So I decided in 2022 that I wanted to uh, uh, pivot. And instead of working 100% full-time clinical, I took a, a role where I would be 50% uh, non-clinical, where I, I would work as a direct in a directorship role for clinical informatics. And that's the role that I'm currently in now. I currently serve as the medical director for clinical informatics at People One Health which is a, a direct primary care organization in the United States. And I've been doing that now almost for the past year. It's been great work. I, I help them with all aspects of their health IT operations and oversee their digital strategy as well. And it, it's been great work. I've, I've, um, I've also been, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm pursuing board certification in, in clinical informatics as well. So I'm hoping that that will also push me further along this path. Uh, Adami, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, and I'm super excited <laughs> to have you on. And it was interesting uh, when you were sharing your experience going from engineering into medicine and how you were thinking about specialties and primary care was never like a sexy uh, or a high demand uh, specialty to go into. So you went into radiology. So uh, I have kind of a similar or parallel track where I did biomedical engineering and my subspecialty was in biomechanics. And I always thought if I go to med school, like I would end up in orthopedics. And then during my orthopedic surgery, I just hated it and didn't understand why <laughs> anyone would go into it. I did not fit at all into the surgery culture. And mm -hmm. uh, what you're talking about in terms of being a people's person and how it was easy for you to talk to people and being that people's person, it's, it's such an important skill. And I think uh, we're doing a disservice, like you said, to our medical students, but also to the communities that we serve and uh, how we promote primary care, how we talk about it, how we, we compensate for it. So I think it's really important for people who have non-traditional paths into medicine to, to share their, their, their journey and to share why it's, it's okay to go into primary care. And there's so many things you can do with it. So it's, it's great to have yeah. you on and to share about all those experiences on all the different paths. When yeah. I eventually went into family medicine, my old program director, which Dr. Khalil Nozrania said, would say that when you graduate as a family physician, you're like an undifferentiated cell. 
which later on in practice can differentiate into anything you want it to be. And it's interesting to see that in your case, you didn't differentiate into one thing, but it's, it's a continuous journey and a continuous evolution. And you're always learning more skills and getting more certification and finding yourself in, in different roles and just going with it and, and making a difference to, to many patients. So I'm, I'm really yeah. glad to have you on to, to share your experience and uh, talk oh, about thanks. primary care and medical informatics and everything in between. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And thanks for sharing your perspective as well. I, I mean, you know, to, to, to dive a little deeper in, in, into my personal experience during residency, I went to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center for my residency training, and there is a strong push for all of their graduates to specialize. You know, that's, that's where all of our mentors said, you know, what, what, what do you want to do when you graduate? Do you want to do cardiology? Do you want to do ortho? And nobody wanted to do primary care. I actually felt that if, if I didn't subspecialize that I somehow failed my residency program. And believe it or not, I got the impression from some of my mentors that I did fail in some way when I decided that I don't want to do cardiology. I mean, actually, I, 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 thought, I thought really long and hard about, about applying for cardiology. I even thought about palliative care. And when I decided to just become an, a generalist, I really lost a lot of support from my residency program. And so you're, you're absolutely right. We need to do a better job of highlighting the success stories of people that go into primary care, showing them that it can be sexy, it can be versatile, it can be something that opens doors for you, and it's not, you know, it's not that drab kind of depressing, boring uh, idea that that people may have whenever they go into primary care. It really is, like you said, it's, you're an undifferentiated cell. You can become anything, and the value of an, a medical degree is extremely high. Right, and and, and some programs do have like. Now, some of the internal medicine programs around the country do have like primary care tracks where uh, residents can get into the primary care track and finish and work in primary care afterwards. For example, I remember when I was working at IU, they had actually a track where you could be a primary care physician in in one of the small towns in Indiana. And some people loved that and were, were following that track. But we can discuss too why primary care is, is not as pursued uh, in the U.S. So do you want to do you want to tell us, Rami, just a bit about why primary care is is not a specialty that people pursue uh, in the U.S. at this point? I think it has to do with a number of reasons. The number one thing I think is that there is a pretty significant underinvestment in, in primary care, uh, both in the U.S. and I think everywhere. We, we don't spend money on primary care because it's not a money maker. And so that leads me to my next point, which is that Primary care exists in a payment model that is not designed to support primary care. So I'm talking about the fee-for-service payment model, wherein you get paid if you give a service to a, to a patient. So this is a system in which the sicker the population, the more revenue is generated. And that directly contradicts the ethos of preventative medicine and primary care. So you have a specialty that is focused on prevention, where it's coupled with a payment model that disincentivizes health. As a result, it's not a moneymaker. So not a, money is not being spent and poured into primary care. And also the reimbursement structure for physicians is also reflecting that. Primary care physicians are among the, the, the least paid physicians that exist. And so you have individuals who are accruing a ton of debt going to medical school. And as soon as they get out of medical school, uh, they're thinking, how can I pay off this debt as fast as I can? 
it's not going to be in a primary care career. Unfortunately, it's going to be in a radiology career or a dermatology career. And so what, what happens is you have this brain drain away from primary care. You have these people who are good at talking to, to, to individuals who are, who are bright and they're em- empathetic and they, they went into medicine for the right reason, but for the wrong reasons, they're being steered away from probably the, 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 the most critical and important practice of medicine that, that exists. They're being steered away from, from it for the reasons of debt and money and what's considered sexy and, and being thought of as a failure. So you have every year, you have a decreasing number of primary care graduates. And so we're now faced with a primary care physician shortage and it just feeds on itself. So now we have a primary care shortage in the US and in the world. And as a result, it's easier for patients to see their orthopedist when their ankle hurts instead of their primary care doctor, because their primary care doctor has a, uh, a 26 day waiting period. Um, and when they go see their primary care doctor, they're in the waiting room forever. So it's easier and it's better for the patient from a patient experience perspective to go see the subspecialist. So there's just this, this downward death spiral wherein everybody is pushing primary care, both the payer, the patient, and the providers are pushing this field that we know is critical further, further down the totem pole. And again, you know, just to, to comment on, on, on that, we, we know that primary care is associated with excellent health outcomes. I mean, there is a, an overwhelming amount of data and in, in the literature that supports excellent uh, population-based health outcomes with access to high quality primary care. There's no question about it. Um, other countries do it really well. So despite that data, we still don't value it as much as we ought to. And, you know, actually, I think another part of why primary care is failing has to do with informatics, believe it or not. Informatics, in a way, has spoiled medicine. There's become a huge burden of administrative tasks in the day-to-day practice of medicine, billing, coding, insurance, documentation, and, and actually the push towards EHRs over the past like 15 years has really worsened that. I blame a lot of players in the informatics space for actually, I think, I think informatics in that sense failed med- the medical fields in an extent, to an extent. So the practice of day-to-day medicine is becoming less interesting and it's becoming less clinical. And I'm spending, you know, almost quarter to a third of my day doing, or maybe even more doing non-clinical tasks. And so there's less, there's that further disincentivizes individuals from going into fields of medicine where documentation is, is critical. As the cost of care has gone up over the past 20 years, there's been a higher need to justify that cost and documentation plays a huge role in that. So I think those are the big elements that really feed the primary care problem in the U.S. and in the, in the rest of the world. You raised so many good points, Rami, and I want to echo what you said in that it's the problem is not just in the U.S., it's, it's global, at least from my experience in, in Lebanon and now in Saudi Arabia. Uh, when I went into family medicine, I would hear not just from uh, people at the medical school, but also from my community, non-medical people who would be confused about why I would willingly go into family medicine when I could have chosen <laughs> 
another specialty, right? And I would hear that like the anak cannot shot it. Yeah, Why yeah, didn't yeah. you go into <laughs> neurosurgery or cardio? Like I would like to my face, like no shame. You know, yeah. you know, like <laughs> as if I, I it was like my plan Z, not even like yeah. B, C, D, or E, you know. So th- th- there there is you you get that uh pressure from, from the community as well. And yeah, I when I, when I, um, you know, I, I, I live in Dubai now and uh, I, I'm, I've been interacting with some healthcare folks here. And when I tell them that I'm a generalist, uh, they, their response is, oh, oh, so you didn't specialize yet. Okay, okay. You know, so it, the, the idea is like, okay, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're on your way. You're on your way. Well, good luck to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I get that. Like, I tell people I'm into family medicine. They're like, okay, should I have to trust us? Like, no, no, yeah. I'm done. They're like, خلصت? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> All it's a shame, really. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a shame, really. Um, and and that's and and Khalil, I know you're a pulmonologist, but actually, I think I think pulmonology is is. Uh, I, I I hope there's no disrespect. I hope you don't feel in any way uh, that that we're we're bashing subspecialists. You are but... bashing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I think I think pulmonology is a fantastic field, and and it's very it has a lot of. Um, as I'm sure you you could speak to much more eloquently than me, uh, a lot of elements of, of internal medicine and, ge- and and generalist medicine as well. Right, especially like intensive care and stuff like that has uh, mm. you learn a lot of the internal medicine aspects, but also pulmonology, right? Like asthma, COPD, all, all this is overlaps with primary care. Mm. Uh, upper respiratory infections right like you, i mean a, a lot of for a lot of patients like rami was saying it's easier to see a specialist than a primary care because there's just not enough of us so right. i know a lot of people who would go to see a pulmonologist for the common cold or like the flu because there's there, like in one institution you would find four pulmonologists and only one primary care physician and in in one center i uh, i worked in once there was nine orthopedic surgeons on staff and only one family physician who was also the chief wow. medical officer. So it's, it's it's a joke, you know, like even in residency, if you look at the uh, class size, right, of how many orthopedic surgeons are graduated each class, surgeons, et cetera. And then you look at the size of the family medicine program or the internal medicine program who don't specialize. And the numbers are so skewed uh, towards specialization. And l- like you said, it starts early on in med school and then it's just reinforced with every level. Right, right. Yeah. So- Go ahead. I was going to say actually that in, in, in DC, for example, I was talking to Rami before uh, off, offline, but but in DC, when you look at it right now, because primary care is so underpaid and the area is so expensive, a lot of the primary care physicians are turning towards being concierge doctors. And believe it or not, some of the specialists, even I know a pulmonologist who is doing that right now. And so they're turning to concierge doctors. And so patients are finding it very hard to find affordable uh, primary care physicians right now because you only find them now in either in underserved areas or in academic medical centers where people are still practicing under the umbrella of an academic medical center. So that's mm-hmm. that's where it is. But I was going to segue into the medical informatics part and its role also in like I, I, it was pushed, I, I guess, uh, over time and it was subsidized by the U.S. government for a while to to push everybody into going into electronic health records. So, Sarani, I'm going to ask you this question is, do you think uh, electronic health records, the way they were pushed, were they helpful to propagate medicine forward or were they a force of quote-unquote evil that uh, pushed people backwards and, and, and are they moving forward with time? 
That's a big question. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that I think the, there was an explosion in health informatics around uh, the Obama administration. There was a big push from the Obama administration to re- redefine health informatics and basically convert, digitize all paper records. And it was then that uh, a ton of attention and money got poured into EHR development and EHR adoption more than ever in the history of, of, of informatics and, and uh, healthcare IT. 2009 was the year. It was the, the High Tech Act. When the High Tech Act was passed, that was really what pushed. Um, it was like a renaissance for informatics. And I think that a lot, a lot has happened in the field since then. A lot has happened for the field. A lot, a lot of good stuff has happened in the field of informatics, like CPOE for computerized order entry. Uh, a lot of cl- clinical decision support has has been phenomenal. But I think that we have failed to an extent after that that era because of how much of an emphasis we've placed on documentation. I think the burden of documentation is probably the biggest failure of health informatics um, in the past 15 years. We have put ourselves, we have built this, this monster of a problem where we have created software that helps us better document and policy then follows where you now have to document in order to get reimbursed. And so then uh, the vendors will then make software that makes it easier to document and then the policymakers will, you know, again, it's just the cycle such that all you do now is document. And all I do is look at a computer during my encounters with the patient. And I can't go home at night when I'm done with my patients and not have work to do at, at the end of the day. I think this is a direct result of informatics and big tech's involvement in the space, which is probably, I think, the other I think failure of informatics in healthcare is and this is potentially controversial, but there's an increasing feeling that the presence of big tech in the informatics and healthcare space has been detrimental to healthcare. And that's because you have these individuals like Amazon and Apple with deep pockets and big development teams and really seemingly noble claims that they'd like to you know, make, make healthcare better and transform healthcare. And they, they make a product and they you know, throw it into the mix. But what happens is because our healthcare system is already so fragmented and siloed, their participation in the game ends up really just worsening the issue. They're, they're throwing products onto an already broken system. And as a result, the system gets more fragmented. And all the while we have this idea that Healthcare is getting better when in reality, their participation hasn't made it really much better. Uh, again, this could be a controversial opinion, but I, I think that we have to be wary of uh, how a lot of technology from big tech is accepted and incorporated into healthcare systems, because I think there's room for potential harm. And it, there may be even more room for potential harm with this AI gold rush, where there's a lot of buzz about generative and predictive AI. There's a possibility that these products, they may help to solve a single problem, but they don't actually help to solve the healthcare problem, the the big healthcare problem. And so if it's not solving the big healthcare problem, what exactly is it doing? Before we talk about uh, the the rush uh, to AI, I want to take a step back about something you were talking about in terms of documentation. I think 
uh, we can talk so much about uh, documentation, but the system we have right now, and I think there was a study back before COVID in JAMA, where they uh, looked at first-year uh, residents, and they were only spending, I think it was like 10 or 15% of their time doing direct patient care. And mm-hmm. the bulk of their time, we're talking 90% of their time, was done doing documentation. So basically the system that we have right now for first year residents or interns, they're, they're basically glorified MAs, right? So yeah. they're not doing they're not doing uh, any patient uh, care, right? Of course, we try to say, oh, they're going to learn so much from filling all this paperwork and doing this documentation. But I think it's just a lie that we tell ourselves, like, is this really the best way for them to spend their time and the best way to learn? And this is where like the hype comes in with like AI, how it's going to solve the problem of documentation. How, how did we end up in a system, even before like electronic medical records were, wh- why were like scribes, for example, not yeah. more prevalent in the medical community, right? Like if you look at other professionals, let's say like lawyers, or let's take an example of a typical courtroom, right? You have someone whose job is to be on a typewriter and to type everything going on. You don't find the lawyer typing and talking at the same time. So how did we end up with this expectation that the doctor should be able to talk to a patient and document and do a physical exam? Like, how did we end up with this system uh, in which the burden falls on the doctor themselves? Uh, I think that gets lost. Like, we we don't need to have that system, right? So if we can go back and design the system de novo, like, would we really have that role delegated to doctors themselves? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, scribes are... There have been studies on practices that pay for scribes. And, you know, for people who may be listening, who don't know what we're talking about, this is a human being who sits in the room and just listens and transcribes the entire clinical encounter. Sorry, in those practices that, that uh, incorporate scribes, physicians, they spend less time interacting with the computer. They're, they're reporting higher rates of satisfaction, as are the patients. But I think you're right. I mean, the reason that we even have to turn to scribes represents, I think, a failure of EHR data entry usability. The the EHR was supposed to make documenting easier. It's made it so hard that we now have to introduce another human into the picture to be able to handle the load of documentation. It's fascinating to me. And I think it's also fascinating to see that this is probably the one area of AI that I'm most interested in because I spent some time working for 3MM Modal, working on uh, natural language processing uh, models. And I think that AI can really help this documentation problem because there's Dragon, right? You're you're familiar with Dragon or M-Modal where you just dictate into the microphone. And then that algorithm takes your speech and it breaks it up into syntax. And then it takes the syntax and it it can make, make it into context, right? That's something that has been refined and it works fairly well, as I'm sure you all use in your clinical practice. The next step is these ambient microphones in exam rooms. So Nuance and Microsoft had announced a partnership where they want to make the smart exam room. I'm sure you've seen that YouTube video where the patient and the the provider are just sitting and they just talk. And then it parses the natural conversation into an actual exam note. I think that can be a really interesting application of AI that would help solve the documentation problem. I think that that's what we're going to, we're going to see we talk a lot about AI and medicine, right? There's this gold rush. Everyone's talking about it. I think realistically, that's going to be something that we see fairly soon. And I'm very excited to see um, applications of AI in the NLP space. But it's it's going to be tough. I mean, 
it's really hard to parse out a clinical narrative, especially with the way that we type or the way that we talk. So there's speech, you know, speech to speech to context, and then there's typing. So can, can an algorithm reason over a note that you type and understand the nuances in that narrative? As physicians, we drop subjects and nouns and we do, we're really bad at syntax. You know, we just, a sentence can be CT neg, right? What is, who's the, who's the subject? Who's the verb? What, what are we talking about? How does the system know what to attribute neg to, right? These are the kind of things I helped uh, work on at Emoto, but it's, it's tough. It's tough work. And I think AI is going to be what pushes us uh, into some solution. So this is what I, what, what I really hope. Uh, and obviously, by virtue of being an engineering and into biotechnology, like I, I really do believe in the transformative power of technology. But at the same time, I need to go back to what we started a conversation with about being able to talk to people and how that is a skill. And I cannot focus on that enough. Like whenever I have a student shadowing me or a resident with me in the clinic, like how do you get a history from a patient? That is such a tough skill to do. And especially in primary care, when the patient can come into you with any complaint, you know, you're not like in a super subspecialized focused clinic, you know, you're not an orthopedic surgeon where the, where the patient is coming to you with an MRI result and you need to schedule a surgery, right? Like a patient is coming to you and they don't know what's wrong with them. So how to get that history is, is, is very tough. And, and, and that's where you will still uh, need uh, humans. And I think with a lot of like the big tech, they're trying to like bypass that and try to like automate the history and have it being like a pre-filled questionnaire. Like we've, we've had like those intake exams and intake questionnaires like in different paper form for like the past hundred years, but you still need to at look into the patient and being able to do what Dr. House was doing, right? Like have that reasoning and being able to like pick up cues from how they're walking, what they're talking. So a patient might not necessarily know what's wrong with you. And, and that's where like a good primary care physician is able mm. to hone into all of that and then come up with the diagnosis. So I think we don't focus a lot on talking about how hard it is and how much of difficult skill it is to being able to just be a diagnostician, right? Like I know like in med school, they always tell you the history and physical exam is the most important. And they course, all those studies in which just by doing a good history and physical exam, you are able to come up with 80% of the differential diagnosis. But the reality is like doctors spend so little time on history taking and they just automatically order like hundreds and thousand dollars worth of labs and imaging. And no mm. one is actually like talking to the patient. And I think that skill is lost, especially it starts with residency when you're spending 90% of your time doing documentation. So it, it just, it's a loop that feeds itself. You lose the skill because you're, you're not getting trained enough with it. And then you're becoming more specialized and we're really losing that skill. And there's not a whole bunch of people who are able to teach. Right. That yeah. skill. It's a shrinking subset. Yeah. I, you know, it's as we become a hyper specialized AI-focused healthcare system, I think the level of harm that patients will have to dodge in the future as they maneuver that healthcare system is going to be far greater in the next few decades. If you're a patient and you're trying to navigate a healthcare system where you have access to physicians, perhaps good access, but your access to physicians are people who um, are only subspecialized in certain areas, I think that 
there's going to be inherent biases that could potentially lead you down a harmful path of treatment. And it's for that reason, we have to emphasize the importance of generalists in the healthcare system. I'm not saying that everybody should be a generalist, right? We absolutely need subspecialists. And it's important that subspecialists have progressed and advanced the way they have over the past, you know, 50 years, but they shouldn't displace the primary care doctor as a part of it. And, and again, I'm not saying that they, subspecialists did it. It's just this, it's this, in, this in, incentivization that has, has done it. Right. Right. Which, which brings me, I'm going to talk since we're discussing like AHRs and medical informatics too. So I'm going to say that I think some of the payers are starting to uh, acknowledge some of this because recently the billing, let's say, for outpatient appointments has changed to where you can do it as a time-based billing now, not necessarily a uh, documentation-based billing. So it's giving leeway for the doctors now to maybe do it as time-based and that'll, that'll give you more leeway and to be able to get the higher billing without having to document an extensive physical exam that half of, half of which you have not done yourself. But saying yeah. that, my question for you is like, like here we have, and going to HRs, we have Epic at our at our system. And what I like about Epic is you are able to connect to any chart that at Epic and another hospital and be able to get all the old medical records very easily, check the scans out, check everything else out, which I don't know if you look at it, are you saving money? Are you not saving money? I'm not sure if you've looked at that yourself or not by doing this because you're not repeating the tests. But the other part of it is when the Obama administration pushed for EHRs, what frustrates me a bit is not all centers have the same EHR system, right? Some of them are Epic, some of them are Cerner, some of them are Allscripts or whatever other EHR system is there. So you cannot connect to, these systems don't talk to each other. So what do you think of this the disconnectivity and what do you think of like, is it money saving or not? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think the topic of interoperability is, is really a huge one of, of in, in informatics and there's an entire industry and health information exchange industry that's just built around getting these records to interact with one another and developing um, interoperability standards that allow you to share that information, regardless of what your front end medical record is. So you may know of some of the, the major um, national HIEs, Care Quality, Commonwealth, Eat Health Exchange, they, they cover the, the Veterans Association. Um, these are national health information exchanges that uh, recently with the, with the Cures Act, recently there's some uh, mandates that are pushing private healthcare organizations to participate and share data to those health information exchanges. Now, this is all in the U.S., of course, but up until recently, and I, and I mean up until you know the past couple of years, there really wasn't much incentive or support to share a lot of that data to the exchange so that it can be viewed a- across different EHRs. Fortunately, that's changing. So uh, I think over the next few years, even this year, I mean, even in 2023, I've seen significant improvements in the not not just the amount of data that's being shared, but the quality of data that's being shared. So there are there has been a push for for greater uh, adoption of interoperability standards that make it so that the data that you share has to meet a certain standard in order for it to get into the exchange. And I think HIEs are um, are fantastic. I use them every day. Uh, you use them every day with Epic, although in, it, with Epic, it's it's kind of its own internal HIE, right? It's it's not, Epic is a beast. I mean, Epic has 31% of the market share and for a reason, it's the golden crown of EHRs. Um, and so I, 
it's it's nice to be in the epic ecosystem because as part of as being in that ecosystem you have access to your own little hie it's not even a little hie it's a huge hie uh although although the, the real answer and the real real support should be behind um hies that that support you know all all different all different vendors um so i think it's to answer your question i i i don't know about money savings you know i i don't i don't know that i can comment comment on that but i think from a patient safety perspective hies are huge i mean patient from a patient safety perspective it's it's critical for me to know what testing was done so that i'm not repeating testing so that i'm not potentially uh, uh going down a wrong treatment pathway and i'm i'm excited about hies because i i think that um they allow me to practice in a much more informed way where whereas when i was in training i had to rely on waiting for a fax machine and sometimes you know if you have an inpatient in the icu you can't wait for that other institution to fax you what you need to see so you make treatment decisions right then and there right i'm sure any of you you've probably been in, in situations like that during you know in 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 critical care where, where you you don't have time to wait so if you don't have access instant access to an hie what do you do you just you make the, you make the decision with the information in front of you right, right. yeah i give you an example i mean yesterday we we had a patient where she came in with like a blockulated uh, pure diffusion of fluid around her right chest which she had cancer before and stuff like that and uh, my next step was like i told her i'm going to do a cat scan of the chest on you and she's like no i wait I, I did it yesterday at this and this hospital so i was Im- immediately able to access the cat scan results and we saved her cat scan mm. because I, I was able to view the images access the results and that helped out with saving her cat scan that's great and that's i mean even So HIEs to date have been mostly just sharing sharing structured data in the form of text but uh we're now seeing HIEs that support DICOM imaging which right. is fantastic. Yeah. Was that was that in the epic was that in uh, did you find the images yes, through we, epic we or get, we get through crisp there's a there's there's uh. a, there's a crisp uh HIE that supports DICOM imaging that you can access and then that will let you view the images actually. Uh, oh yeah that's all of dc and virginia still on not any but for example all of dc and all of maryland are in and and crisp so you can view all all the hospitals put their images there so you can view all the images that are there no oh, that's great yeah, yeah that's great yeah i think we can all agree that no one wants to go back to paper record and faxes and it's funny that we 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 still rely on faxes right i think it was like in quebec canada recently where they were trying to implement ai and the, the the whole like operation was blocked because of like the system still relying on fax machines in 2023 so <laughs> that's the level of like disconnect that we have like you have yeah. like prehistoric technology <laughs> clashing with like futuristic <laughs> technology and we're, we're stuck in the middle <laughs> so i'm i uh one my organization we're we're opening a clinic a new clinic and part of I, i was asked to kind of just oversee some of the it aspects of 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 opening a new clinic and by far the the biggest pain in my neck has been getting the fax line from the isp and just getting the fax line to in, interact with you know our our ehr so yeah i totally agree with you getting um getting old analog technology to to still fit in the medical world it's funny though i mean we i have a lot of front desk staff who they still rely heavily on fax it's a generational thing you know a lot of folks um in those roles are a couple generations older and you know they grew up with fax and so they still rely heavily on it and for whatever reason we're still using it and i think from at least from my experience in, in lebanon where like hipaa isn't really a thing 
Mm. Doctors rely on WhatsApp and to interact with each other and with patients. And I would say overall, it's, it's a very positive and encouraging experience. I know like in Epic, they recently have something where like, you have something similar to like a group chat going on when it comes to like a certain patient, but being able to have that seamless interaction on your phone through WhatsApp, which, which is something already everyone outside of the US is using, but how to make it like HIPAA compliant is a whole nother thought, but there's, there, there are different solutions and the technology yeah. is there, but how, how do you adopt it to the, to the healthcare system? One, uh, it's, it's an interesting thought. So one thing that I was surprised of, and, and this is probably not surprising to you because you've, you've both trained in, in this area of the world was just how reliant everybody is on WhatsApp. And so it's, it's fascinating to me that everybody uses WhatsApp here, which is, you know, n- not meant for healthcare, not meant for sensitive information. I mean, sure, it, there's some level of encryption there, but there is a really strong reliance on WhatsApp for day-to-day health discussions and protected health information. And from a U.S. policy perspective, it's a nightmare. But from a like an innovative perspective, I think it makes sense, right? I mean, it's it makes sense. It works and it's functional. And I found it's like, practical. I like it. It's practical, right? It doesn't and, give you a headache. Yeah. And it makes me think, so what, what, I mean, what if we took that same approach and just thought, okay, how can you make an, a medical record practical? What, what if, what if we just forgot about policy, forgot about documentation and reimbursement? You just say, how would, how, how would a, re- a medical record for a patient look if I just got rid of all that stuff, threw it out the door and made something fresh? Might it look like Wikipedia, like, or a Facebook page where you have edits that are made to it by authorized users, all APIs from different health organizations connect into it. Or like, for instance, and like, if you had it like the Facebook model where you have uh, your about me section or something like an about me section is your medical history, your friends or your network is the clinicians that you work with. And and so it, it sometimes can be kind of a drag when you think of where could we go if we weren't bogged down by the status quo and policy and regulation. I'm partly excited to start working in this in this region because I think that there's a lot more opportunity to take root, whereas in the US they would just die at someone, some administrator's doorstep. But here, because there's perhaps less of an emphasis on, you know, well, we have to do it this way and this is what the government says, you know, I think there might be opportunities for more exciting things. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I, you know, I've only lived here for seven months. Maybe you could comment on it more than I could, but I just, I feel like, you know, the reason that there are, there are really exciting things happening in Saudi Arabia, for instance, is that if somebody wants something to happen, it can happen, right? And you don't have to necessarily get the stamp of approval by multiple different stakeholders. Maybe that's a bad thing. <laughs> no, no, I think like in Saudi Arabia right now, they're moving towards having like a unified medical record for each uh, citizen and resident. And I think, um, was it like, I think Singapore has the Lithuania, if I'm not mistaken. So there are like a few countries who have like a unified medical record number for each citizen. Some people have it like on a chip. Some people have it like on an ID card. So going back to what Khalil was saying, you don't really need to have like one EHR for like the entire country or the entire world. But how do you have like all those systems talk to each other? And like, how do you enforce it? And how do you incentivize it? So just starting with the idea of who owns the medical record, right? Is it the primary care physician? Is it the institution? Is it the patient? Is it the government? Is it the insurance? 
what can you share with who? So there's a lot of questions uh, to be asked and it depends on like the system you find yourself working in. Is it like a fragmented system like the US as a, a unified government system like the NHS and in the UK? So I think those are all like important questions to ask, but definitely what's going on right now in Saudi Arabia in terms of promoting primary care, promoting value-based care, empowering uh, patients and physicians to take ownership of their health. There's a lot of growth, a lot of opportunity, what's going on in Neom right now, right? You have like mm. literally every person's dream, like you have a fresh blank slate and you're able to build an entire system. So not just the healthcare system, right? But all like the social determinants of health, living in a 15 minute walkable city, how does that impact your health? So it's, mm. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the whole thing. How do you change the incentive and build like the perfect and ideal society? So lots of opportunities, lots of lessons, and it's an exciting time to be in, definitely. Yeah, I would say I would say that that when we were talking about WhatsApp, I think that even when I was in Lebanon, like it's more it's an HIE in itself with like <laughs> they used to take videos of CTs, like if you're a patient over, take a video. Oh wow! Then WhatsApp, then you just take a video. <laughs> but but, but, but so, it works. You're yeah. laughing, but it works. It it's, works. it's very it works. practical. It's practical. Like, yeah, it works. If I'm in, I'm inside that. I want a second opinion. It's a life or death emergency, and I want an opinion of someone in Beirut. I can literally take a WhatsApp video, send it to them, and have an answer in 30 seconds. Right. It works. People use it because it works. Right, right, and it's cheaper. It's cheap. Like it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to buy it. Mm. But saying that, Rami, since we're talking to you also about EHRs and primary care, I just wanted to ask you. Uh, what the work you're doing currently is with the P1, P1H, right? Is your company currently? Yeah. What's, what kind of yes. work are you doing? And and you're currently in Dubai too. So are you, I know you're working with the US from Dubai, but are you planning also to implement some of the work that you're doing in the uh, MENA region? Sure, sure. So um, so I'll tell you, I, I moved to Dubai uh, for personal reasons, not for, for any professional reason. Um, and so my 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 interest is to begin working here in in the region because I, I feel it's important to I feel it's a, it's important to work in, in the region where you live in order to feel connected to it and and I'll, I'll be honest I I'm getting antsy I'd like to really start to, to to find work here I find that a lot of the there's there's a great uh, informatics community here health informatics community here which I've been fortunate enough to plug into and and I've made a, a number of contacts and, and friends in the space so uh, I have some potentially exciting uh, opportunities and paths that I'll, I'll likely be taking. None are, none are formal, but I'm, I'm, look, I'm looking forward to a, a couple a couple opportunities. In the meantime, uh, it's been great to continue working as, as a director of informatics for People One Health because I, I really believe in the People One Health model, which is, which is the direct primary care model. We touched briefly on it, but I'll, I'll explain it a little bit more. So, um, so direct primary care is subscription-based primary care. It's primary care without the without the insurance company, without the third-party payer. It's a direct relationship between the person who needs care and the person who's giving care. Um, you 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 probably know them as a concierge doctor. I mean, that's kind of what how it really started. Concierge medicine is sort of how dr- direct primary care started, um, and and that's you know fine. Direct concierge medicine is fine. I, I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with with concierge medicine. But it cannot scale, like you said. You you have 
a, a doctor, a one primary care doctor who maybe has a, a panel of uh, a patients who are maybe three, 400 patients big. And they probably take excellent care of those 300 patients, but we already have a primary care shortage. And that model isn't going to fix a national or global issue where we need more primary care doctors taking care of more lives. So instead are offering a a model of of primary care called employer-sponsored direct primary care. So instead of one individual physician caring for three, 400 patients, you have a scale that's more like three, 4,000 to one. And that's because you rely on a system where the employer still is the one paying for the benefit. So, you know, right now in the United States, if somebody needs health insurance, where are they getting it? They're getting it from their employer. And even in this part of the world, in the Middle East, who pays for health insurance? It's your employer. So why not, instead of paying an insurer, why not just pay the provider directly? And that's what employer-sponsored direct primary care is. I really think it's a way to drive down costs. Uh, you, you, we know that more than 30% of, of healthcare spending is wasted on administrative spending, maybe even more than 30%. We also know that a lot of the administrative burden is what's fueling this, this system where I only see my patient for a few minutes per encounter, and I need to see you know, 30, 40 patients a day in order to basically get paid a, a living wage. So when you, when you remove that middleman, you free up a lot of money, you free up a lot of time for patients and providers to actually talk and just to get back to what the patient-provider relationship is. And actually, you keep the employers happy. Employers are happy because you get to spend more time with your patients, you keep them healthier. There's less uh, time spent away uh, for, uh, for, as an employee. Their, their employees are, are kept healthier and they're not spending as much time uh, away from work. Uh, everybody's happy in, in this system. And uh, I really believe in the work that they're doing here. We have we have clinics in three states now. We have um, eight clinics. We're opening our ninth. And I would love to see the direct primary care model here in, in Dubai uh, or, or, or anywhere in the Middle East. I think there would be a, a lot of interest in, in such a model. But um, as uh, Hamid and I were talking uh, offline a couple of days ago, I, I think that culturally there needs to be more of an interest in, in primary care first, because without that interest, this is something that individuals would pursue. I think there's a lot of potential definitely for the direct primary care model, not just in the U.S., but outside. And I think it, it just flips the fee for service uh, model, definitely. There's a lot of push towards value-based care right now in the Middle East, specifically in the uh, GCC, including in Saudi Arabia, there's this whole 2030 vision and they're pushing for value-based care. Now, whether that ends up being something similar to mm-hmm. government-sponsored direct primary care, as opposed to work-sponsored direct primary care, that remains to be seen. But I think there's, there's a recognition that the fee-for-service model is broken and we need to change the incentives. And I think just to give an analogy to the listeners, We give this analogy to the auto insurance, right? So everyone has auto insurance and you use it for the big things like a big car crash for the big emergencies, right? But you don't use your car insurance for the regular oil change. So it's the same way with with healthcare. You leave the insurance for the big things, the big emergencies, the car crashes, the the cancers, the catastrophe. But for the day-to-day 
chronic diseases and acute illnesses, we need to like flip the model and come up with a system that works better for the patients, the doctors, and the payers. I think all the stakeholders agree that the current system is broken. The incentives are definitely misaligned with all three players. So how do you create a new system where it works for everyone the way it should? And I think this is the promise of diet primary care. You're just starting fresh with your your patient. And it's, it's a throwback, like you were saying, to the old and the ideal doctor-patient relationship, which we see in the movies or we hear our parents talk about. When you really had your own like family physician who took care of the family from cradle to grave and through the ups and downs of, of life. So if we can come up with a model that fits in our busy lives in 2023 when we're traveling, we're not even living in the same city or at the same country uh, and having access to your physician on through telehealth, through WhatsApp or through, through, through other models, home visits when needed and how to, to make a shift from the sick care model that we have, right? Like it's not, we, we all agree, it's not a healthcare system that we have right now. It's a sick care system. It's incentivized to keep you sick and keep you in the hospital. But a yeah. lot of the care can happen outside the hospital. So how do we do that? And how do we reimagine a world and a system? So it's, it's exciting to have people like you who are working on the ground trying to solve that problem. And it's, it's amazing, right? Like you're living in Dubai, but solving those problems in the US. And it's, it's, it's an exciting time to be in if you take like just a step back to think yeah, about sure. like what. <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 I appreciate that perspective. Yeah, that, that's, um, and I love that analogy, by the way, that, that uh, car insurance analogy. It, it, uh, it's one that really resonates with patients too. I'm, I'm sure you probably used it with, with some patients, but um, it just clicks, right? You, you think about it, if you think about it, it makes sense. We are using the insurance pool to pay for things that the insurance pool was never designed to pay for. And that's why we're in a spending mess. And I agree. I think there's just a lot of, especially in the US and even starting now in, in the Gulf countries too. I mean, there's there's becoming like a lot of layers of, and you need to just remove all those layers because it's, there's a lot of middlemen in, in healthcare. And right. what drives up the costs significantly. And I think, I think uh, utilizing medical informatics and AI to try to potentially bypass the middleman and create care models that bypass the middleman is probably the way to go. Absolutely. Yeah, but it's yeah, a tool. We need to remember like AI is a tool. It's not, it's not the end. It's a tool towards the end. So we need to be creative and brainstorm the system that we deserve and our patients deserve and use AI as a tool. Like we, we shouldn't like follow the gold rush just because it's 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 a tool. And I'm sure like 10 yeah. years down the line, there'll be another tool. So it's just, that's that was the promise of EHR, right? EHR was gonna come and solve like all the healthcare problems. So let's let's not get ourselves <laughs> and just remember that it's a tool. It's a tool, yeah. it's, not, it's not the end. <laughs> it's a means to an end. It's funny because I I, I see, um, I, I read, I follow some healthcare IT news and everyone, I, Everyone and their mother is like, okay, we're doing AI now. We're, we're doing AI now. Okay, let's take a step back. What are what problem are you solving? What what is exactly. it? Gonna, what is the? And it, I think AI is going to solve a lot of problems. It will one hundred percent. But um, there's just such a rush to monetize it and to to capitalize on the money making part of it uh, aspect of it. And and that's it's sad to me because we're, we're you know the healthcare system is um, I I can make the analogy. It's like a diseased cow. You can only milk it for so long. I mean, you're, you're, there's, there's so many big tech, big tech players are just throwing their solutions into the field, right? And, 
they 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 milk they milk and they get paid and they get money and what what actually did they fix or what actually did they improve? I would argue they haven't moved the needle much at all. You know, in the past in the past ten years, and what what really needs to change is change the payment model. You know, more of a focus on uh, uh, pre prevention, right? You know, so no. so um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Ahead, I, you're reaching to the choir. And that's, if you look at the US, I mean, the actually survival of people is going down in the US, not going up. And there's multiple reasons for that. But again, it's like you need to focus on preventative care because a lot of people do not have good access to preventative care. But but I can say, yeah. as you were saying, the analogy of like uh, the diseased cow, I think it, it reminds me of the analogy of the Lebanese uh, Lebanese economic system and Lebanese government. They milked it till the end. <laughs> crashed and that's like the healthcare system. Yeah. So Rami, I think we've we've talked quite a bit. I think we've been talking for like an hour right now. So I think <laughs> we, can, we we should do a part two. We should do a we, part we, two. Oh, part I would two. love that. It's been it's been really nice yeah. uh, talking with you both. Uh, so thanks a lot, and and and. Uh, Keep us updated on your future endeavors, and hopefully uh, we'll see what your also direct uh, your work on the direct primary care system, uh, how it's going to unfold too. Thank you very much, uh, Khalil Muhammad. Really, really nice to be on your on your show, and um, I, I'm really, really honored to to have uh, participated in this. Thank you. Thank you again.